Well, sometimes it can be hard to see some things for what they really are. Uh, It can be hard to make a true assessment of something if perhaps we're looking at it the wrong way uh, or in the wrong light. Uh, Sometimes perhaps we might be judging something by all the wrong metrics, so we're not really seeing it for what it really is. Uh, Good coffee, for example. Well, some think it involves driving long distances to find that perfect roast. Uh, Others, for example, might think that the perfect coffee has to be roasted in your own garage. But these people would be wrong. Good coffee, uh, fantastic coffee, in fact, comes in the form of freshly ground Arabica beans from your local 7-Eleven. But unfortunately, for your undiscerning ones, this just isn't the case. 7-Eleven coffee, it is foolishness for those who are of the snobbish coffee world. But to us who are being saved $4 a cup, it is the wisdom of the savvy coffee drinker. Now, in God's grace, I will uh, allow you to disagree with me on this one. Uh, But I use this illustration because I think it highlights uh, something that what we see in the passage here tonight about the way the Corinthians themselves judged certain things, in particular their leaders. Uh, Like us coffee snobs who don't drink 7-Eleven coffee or do, whichever side you sit on, uh, we make prejudgments about what we're going to drink based on certain metrics. So if you're an avid coffee connoisseur, for example, then your reaction to hearing about 7-Eleven coffee, it probably disgusted you. Uh, You probably felt something inside that said, no, you were just plain wrong. I'm sorry about that. Because coffee is solely based on one thing, flavour. That's it, bottom line. Yet, to the uni student, or so those on a tight budget, or if you're just me, we judge its glory by its price. We all use different metrics to argue uh, that it is in fact great coffee. Now the Corinthians, obviously they weren't judging coffee, Uh, they weren't doing that by all the wrong metrics, they were judging their leaders by all the wrong metrics. Uh, They'd come to see... Uh, worldly influences and successes, uh, prosperity, for example, gifts and talents that these leaders had, they come to see all of these worldly things as some of the key characteristics of which to judge their leaders, to see whether they were successful or glorious in the Christian life. And so if you remember from two weeks ago when we looked at chapter 1, uh, the main problem then Paul addresses in this, uh, this book up until this point is to do with divisions in the church, right? The church is divided along party lines as to which leader kind of was taking care of which groups. And here, as far in as chapters three and four of this book, Paul continues this theme. It's obviously a very, very big deal, Uh, a theme of dangerous divisions in the church. Uh, There are just a few mentions of the divisions, even in the chapters we're looking at tonight, up on the screen there. You see, like a dog with a bone, Paul's finding it very hard to drop this issue because he knows that this issue is important, that thinking that worldly glory, uh, worldly riches and fame, uh, thinking that these are equivalent to success in Christian leadership or the Christian walk, well, this idea can prove extraordinarily fatal. There's a sense in which uh, some, to some degree, he's attacking the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel here in the first century, and I'll show you what I mean by that in a moment. So in chapters 3 and 4, in tonight's passage, Paul, he wants to set the record straight. Uh, he wants to show 
that being a servant of Christ frequently ends up being the opposite of what they expected, that they've been using all the wrong metrics to judge these things. And so come with me to point one, uh, as Paul highlights the rewards, the, the true rewards of faithful gospel ministry. Uh, to begin, I want to take us to the end of chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles there, uh, look towards the end, uh, where Paul, he cuts straight to the chase. Now, up until this point, he has spent uh, both of these chapters uh, coming up to this moment, and he finally, I think as you're reading, you kind of see he cracks it a little bit here, where his frustration with the Corinthian church finally bleeds out onto the pages he's writing on as he shows them his lot in life, his rewards for faithfully serving Jesus. Now, are we ready for this? This is what he says in 4.11 onwards. To this very hour... We, grow, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up until this moment. Pretty heavy words right at the end there. But this is it. If you want to see all the fringe benefits of Paul's gospel ministry, it's right here before you. This is his glory, the reward he's received from the world for faithfully preaching Christ crucified to those around him. As you read this, like, doesn't that excite you? Don't you just want to go out and proclaim the gospel when you see things like this, knowing that the faithful proclamation of the word meant homelessness for Paul, that it meant endless persecution pretty much wherever he went, even by some people who he probably thought should have been allies, Uh, being considered, how's this for your mental health, considered the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Now, I don't know about you, but, but often my biggest worry as a Christian, and now particularly as a Christian minister, uh, is people losing respect for me. It's a fear that I have, uh, particularly when they find out I'm a minister. Uh, occasionally when people find out that I work full-time in the Presbyterian church, conversation comes to an awkward pause, and they're like, oh, I guess that's good for you, isn't it? <laughs> and that's kind of it. You know, children, come with me. You know? <laughs> and there they go. But for Paul, he's completely unfazed. Uh, all of his ministry... Uh, is up there on the screen. That's the wrong slide. Where are we? I've been showing the wrong thing this whole time. Doesn't matter. That's all right. We'll look at it later. For all of his rewards are being considered the scum of the earth, and this doesn't seem to phase him. Uh, it doesn't stop here, though. If we inch back, if we look a little further on in chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 9... Uh, we can see Paul, he describes his calling as an apostle in this way. He says in verse 9, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like those condemned to die in the arena, we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. Uh, Most people think that Uh, Paul is perhaps painting a picture of a Roman procession here. Uh, That's why the NIV translates it the way it does, kind of over-translates a little bit. 
uh, where it's really common after conquering a place, Rome would parade around the spoils of war and right at the end, drawn by horses and carts, were any captured leaders uh, up to open scorn, mockery and shame, uh, often as their final destination was going to be uh, the arena, the gladiator arena or whatever you want to call it, where they are shamefully killed. Their next date is with death and Paul is saying that this is what God has in store for his apostles. This is kind of it for them. They're the ones that everyone laughs at, the ones that everyone mocks at, the scum of the earth deserving only death. Now, this is really heavy, but, but before we lose heart, before we think the cost of following Jesus is a little too steep, uh, some of you might be thinking, stop preaching all this doom and gloom, you know, give us something kind of nice to hear. Um, you may have noticed uh, throughout this that there were several references to rewards in the chapter, and I do have them up there. Uh, 318, 314, and 45. And so while on earth Paul may not have all the glory, particularly the glory that the Corinthians expected their Christian leaders to have, Paul hints that in the end, God won't overlook the service of his faithful ones. Now, whenever heavenly rewards is brought up, uh, it often conjures up speculations in our mind as to what this might be. Uh, And it's almost always necessary to add that little asterisk to to what I'm saying on rewards because, yes, the Bible does mention rewards quite a number of times, but they're not there for us necessarily to speculate as to what they'll be. You know, we're not meant to rub our hands together thinking that uh, God is some kind of heavenly Santa Claus that one day will give us everything we've always wanted because we were faithful. Rather, rewards in the Bible, I suspect, are mentioned usually for one purpose, And that is to highlight the simple fact that God does notice the work of his faithful ones, that our God is righteous and good, and that our faithfulness won't go unnoticed to him. But for some reason, for the Corinthians, it seems, uh, earthly suffering, it was a perfect reason to overlook Paul, or for anyone else that matter. Because for the Corinthians, it didn't align with their views on what a strong, influential Christian leader should look like. I mean, all their other philosophers, all their other great people, they were big and they were drawing large crowds. They were articulate. They did all these amazing things. Paul wasn't really anything like that. And so we know that they began to divide into factions as a result of this, which is what we looked at two weeks ago. Some here following Apollos and some over there following Paul, and you had the Peter group somewhere else. But Paul, he had had enough of this. Uh, In fact, he equates this judging of Christian leaders as something which children would do, right? something that infants do. You know, when kids go around, they say, oh, my dad's stronger than your dad. Well, my dad's richer than your dad, and on and on it goes. Paul's saying, this is you guys. You're being fleshly. You're just acting like kids. You have to stop this. Stop with this hero worship. Stop putting Apollos on a pedestal or putting Peter against Apollos or me against all of them. Stop acting like babies. No, instead, in 4 verse 1, this is how you ought to regard us all. As servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. In other words, we're all simply servants of the gospel, working together for the same purpose. 
And to prove this point, uh, Paul uses a kind of strange farming analogy in here. Do we have any farmers around? No? All right, this one will really hit home, I think. He's saying, it'd be useless for me to plant a seed if Apollos didn't water it. Right? If Paul planted a seed and Apollos just ignored it, nothing would happen. But it would also be useless if Apollos did water, but he went to the next field in the farm and watered everywhere but where you'd planted the seed. And Paul's point, it's obvious at this, at this point, they're both servants of Christ that are working together. They have to be. They're on the same team, working towards the same goal. They're not to be split up into different groups. And a mature church is one that sees them this way. But more than this is that neither of them are anything if God himself didn't cause the growth. Right? No farmer actually causes the seed to sprout. You can plant it, you can water it and do all that. But that is God's job. We can't physically make that happen. That's all God. He is the one that causes the growth. So basically, this is a team sport, all working together, but God alone gets the glory for all the success. And sometimes, as is the case with Paul, uh, being a servant of Jesus means being seen then as the scum of the earth, as the garbage of the world. And this was something that the Corinthians just couldn't comprehend. They couldn't compute it as being a reward for faithful gospel ministry. And so that's where we're going uh, point two. These rewards that Paul had listed are the opposite of what some of the Corinthians had expected. Well, by the time we get down to chapter 4, verse 8, uh, Paul, he's had enough. Uh, and you can tell because from there he starts dripping with sarcasm in the things that he said. He says, uh, it's almost like his brain, it's working overtime to try and get his point across. And so he, he bursts into this sarcasm. But before he gets there, and we'll look at it in a second, uh, Paul, in chapters 3 onwards, he burns through illustration after illustration after illustration about infants and, and buildings and seeds and plants and whatever else he can imagine, all to get one single point across, a single point firmly stuck in their thick skulls, that he and Apollos and Peter, they're not competitors, not even close. As we've already discussed, they're on the same team. They're working for the same goal. They are servants of Christ. Not ones to be elevated or privileged or promoted over the other. Not ones certainly to be worshipped or venerated in any such way. They're not meant to be superstars. I used to go to a church uh, a while back. I've been through quite a few churches in my childhood. And in this particular one, the minister would show up at the back of church. The lights would be dimmed. Smoke machines have the room kind of full. And then the band, I kid you not, uh, they would play riffs from a band called Rage Against the Machine, who, if you know them, are anything but Christian. And the pastor, as these riffs are going, would run his way to the front, kind of dancing up and down, giving kisses to the crowd, get to the front, kind of bow. And his adoring fans would cheer for him. Yeah, this is the best minister ever. I think maybe we could implement something like that here, but <laughs> tone down just a little bit. Not at all, right? That, that's not what Christian servanthood is to be like. That is not what the ministers of the church are to be like. Because ultimately, when you do that, it becomes about them. And it's not about them. The church isn't about me. It's not about Steve Blanco. It's not about any of our students. 
as amazing and as articulate as we might be sometimes, no, church is not about us. It's about Christ. We are merely servants of that truth. But this is precisely the problem that the Corinthian church was in. According to the report from Chloe's household, if you remember back in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, they seem to be looking for glory in the messenger, right? That amazing pastor that runs up with the smoke machines rather than in the message itself. And this seemed to be the root cause of their divisions. The messenger himself was really the metric they used to judge the ministry. Things moved on from Christ crucified, as they shouldn't have been, and instead they became about who can articulate that message. Who is the most wisest and cleverest person with many big words, you know, with with fancy lighting and all of that? And while this may have been impressive to some of them, while many of their other philosophers of their age and the teachers in their day kind of acted like this, it's certainly not meant to be the case with Paul or even the articulate Apollos or anyone else serving the gospel. Yes, some of them will have different gifts. Uh, People have different strengths and gifts that God has given them. But they're meant to use all of those gifts as a mirror which points away from them up to heaven. And to drive this point home, Paul sneakily, uh, in 4 verse 1, uh, he uses a really unusual word for servant here. Uh, It's a word that isn't the normal one he would use. It's used all throughout the New Testament. This is a different one uh, that literally translates to the word under rower, which is a bit strange. But it's basically that guy at the bottom of a boat, right, whose job it was, was simply to take orders from the guy at the front. That was it. They were to serve and take orders. It's a word that basically means that Paul thinks of himself as someone of the lowest rank here. His only job is to respond to his superior, the Lord Jesus, and to do whatever he asks. He's an assistant, he's a helper, he is a servant and nothing more. When he sneaks this word into chapter 4, verse 1, it's Paul's way of saying, I'm a nobody. Right? I'm simply following the orders of my master Jesus and the same goes for my mates Apollos, the same goes for Peter and anyone else out there. We're all the lowliest of servants taking orders from Jesus and nothing more. See, Paul knows, he knows exactly where he stands with all of this and he even knows why. Uh, we don't have time to look into it, but 4, 1 to 7, there's a, an interesting section there about Paul's conscience being clear before God. Um, he really doesn't care very much about being judged by the Corinthians. That's not his motivation for getting all kind of pent up at this point. Uh, his conscience is clear. He's, he's far concerned, uh, far more concerned with serving Jesus, doing his job as a lowly servant of Christ, which is why he says the Lord will judge. He is the only one I really care about, and that's why my mission is so important, not the Corinthians. But obviously... Like as judging coffee, uh, the Corinthians up until this point, they'd, they'd judged by different metrics. They'd seen things in a very different light. To them, it seemed that, that faithful gospel ministry, it had to involve some kind of earthly glory. Right? It had to involve some kind of earthly repayment or fame, perhaps. And the reason we know this is because in 4 verse 8, Paul, he mocks their own claims to this effect. 
He mocks their claims to royalty. Uh, He mocks their claims to riches as he bursts into one of the most sarcastic monologues in the whole Bible. See if I can pull it up. Here it is. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign, kind of like kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. Because the truth of the matter is, it's not that. If being a faithful follower of Jesus meant being kings in this life, meant being rich in this life, then what's going on with me? I'm homeless. I'm living in rags. I'm going hungry. Instead of being a king, I'm considered as the fool. I'm considered the scum of the earth. But Paul is not done yet. He continues this outburst in verse 10, saying, We are fools for Christ, but not you, Corinthians. You guys are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but Corinthians, you guys, I wish I could be like you. You're so strong. You, you're honoured. You have all the dignity. We are dishonoured. It's not already clear. This is still sarcasm. Paul, Paul, he's, he's laying it on thick and fast for them because he wants to demolish their idea that Christian leadership should be anything that is glorious, anything filled with earthly blessings. Maybe that's how you knew the distinguished ones in Corinth, uh, in the areas of philosophy and religion. They were known to have people standing on the street corners, gathering all of their disciples, kind of in awe of who they are. But that's not the case with the church. And herein lies the rub for us. You see, if the Corinthians saw Christian ministry as something that involved uh, fame, as something that involved prosperity, and that you could tell whose ministry was a genuine thing on the basis of the numbers walking through the door, you know, or because of obvious giftings where people go, oh, you're just, you're just so gifted at this or that. You're just a really valuable asset to the church. Or perhaps even the level of respect or honour that the senior pastor gets in public as he runs down the front to his adoring fans. Then maybe, just maybe, the Corinthians thought this, but maybe we've got it all wrong. If we slip into that kind of thinking, we're in dangerous territory. And so with that, I want to take us to our final point, to be careful not to look for glory in all the wrong places. Now, some of you I know uh, have listened to a podcast. Uh, It's a pretty big one uh, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, Mars Hill was a church in Seattle in the United States, uh, run or it was founded by a man named Mark Driscoll, who was an incredibly gifted man. Uh, It was about a church movement who, by God's grace, grew and grew into a mega church structure. Uh, They eventually had campuses across the United States and many people coming to know Jesus thick and fast through its ministry. In some sense, it really was amazing. It really was glorious. I was led by a man named Mark Driscoll, uh, who I mentioned earlier, and he was so influential that many even here in Australia during his heyday began to imitate him. And I remember seeing this in my own church. Many pastors began to speak a bit more like him, a bit more gruff, a bit more manly. Many began to dress like him and speak extremely hard-line truths about sex and marriage and gender roles. 
Now, this man, he, he was considered a bit of an outsider, but for some reason he was also considered quite orthodox. People loved him. They loved his edginess. So much so that even your beloved QTC had him along to give talks at one point, believe it or not. Now, if you know the story, you're probably sitting there in shock that all this has happened. If you don't know the story, um, essentially he collapsed his ministry through his own arrogance and unrepentedness. Uh, it's an amazing story. It's worth listening to. Um, it's also worth weighing up what you hear as well. But this man, what effectively had happened is he had become a shaker and mover. He became the denomination itself for this church. Without him, they were nothing. Without his giftings, they wouldn't draw the crowds. People wouldn't be turning to Christ was effectively the excuse. He became a role player instead of what he should have been, as Paul and Apollos are, role models in the church. People that should model Christ and imitate Christ. Where once Driscoll had led a humble, small church and servant-hearted leadership, and I genuinely believe it was that way, he'd eventually come to see Mars Hill's phenomenal growth, not as something which God had done, but as something that he single-handedly had achieved on his own by his gifts, which some are ironically, if you read in today's passage, were given by God alone. So who gets the glory? Who should get the glory? Now, if you feel the need to see a modern-day example of, of looking at giftings over and above character, there it is. But we had the same sort of things happening in Corinth. That's why I bring this up. Now, ultimately, Mars Hill, it collapsed uh, under the arrogant, unrepentant leadership of Driscoll, but it does function as a modern-day parable, as, as a warning to all churches, uh, because none of us are immune, not even us here tonight, none of us are immune to looking for glory, not in the message, but in the Christian leaders themselves and in their giftings. In other words, looking for glory in all the wrong places. Instead, what we should be doing as a church and we need to be keeping everyone accountable to this, is looking for leaders who exemplify Christ. Leaders who model Christ, who know that their reward is ultimately not on earth through riches or fame, but in heaven. And therefore don't seek to people please, for example, uh, but instead seek to get on with the job of faithfully doing the tasks God has assigned them. Now, throughout this whole passage, a lot of it is, is caught up in Christian leaders. And so you might be sitting there going, well, what has this got to do uh, with me? But I think the same goes for all of us. You see, Paul, later on, he says to be imitators of him in 4.16. He wants the whole church to imitate him effectively as he imitates Christ, as he shows a servant-hearted attitude to leadership as he places himself and Apollos as the lowliest of servants, he expects us all to some degree to follow suit for the sake of building up the church. You see, I think the risk in today's culture uh, is that we want to make church cool, right? We want to make it accessible. We don't, we don't want to stand out from our culture too much, uh, but instead we want to kind of make things what, what I would call seeker-sensitive, right, where we want to appear normal to the outside world so we can kind of attract them in. And while this might sound wise on the surface, which 
probably what the Corinthians were arguing. It's wise to kind of fit in and do things the world's way. It begs the question as to why, why we're afraid to look like fools in the eyes of public opinion. And if we're not careful, uh, if we give our culture too much rope uh, in order to define how we act and how we dress and what we do, we can very, very easily lose sight of what matters most. You see, we're here to glorify God and to prepare for eternity. We're not here to water down the gospel in the hopes that friends or family might feel comfortable coming along. We're not here to make the gospel of Christ crucified cool and relevant or to appear less foolish or archaic. Uh, And it's especially the case uh, when we come across cultural issues like marriage uh, and personal identity and and self-expression, which are the major cultural forces coming down the pipeline at this point. See, like 7-Eleven coffee snobs, I don't mean to bust us out of that really deep thought there, but all the snobs will remain lameless. I won't um, throw them in there. The glory of Christ's church should look like foolishness to the world. We don't just seek to fit in necessarily. We don't just embrace all the cultural changes happening around us. We're called to stand out and keep the message the same. We're called to live holy lives, even if that means looking like fools to everyone else around us. And so to wrap up, I want to shoot it back to you uh, very briefly. Uh, I want to ask how you're going at standing out or standing up for Jesus. Have you ever received uh, a backhanded compliment, for example? You know the ones where people say like, oh, you're, you're smarter than you look. <laughs> it's a compliment, but it's not really. Have you ever been on a the receiving end of a backhanded compliment like this, where people say, wow, you're more fun than most Christians I know. Or, I'm so glad you don't Bible bash. Or, you know, you're one of those normal types of Christians. Because if you have been, this is a warning to pay attention. Because if, if you've received backhanded compliments like that, it might reveal something about your integrity or your witness when it comes to the gospel. Perhaps it might reveal something about uh, who you really feel the need uh, to receive praise from. And so let's take care as we live our lives this week not to measure glory in the wrong way, not to seek the glory of the world, but instead to see the power of the cross as our motivation, to see Jesus' death for our sins, which makes us holy, and to see Jesus giving us his spirit to enable us to live more like him and to live accordingly, even if it means accepting mockery from the world around us and scorn, even if it means we are considered the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Paul's steadfast witness to the Corinthian church uh, of the glories uh, he received as a follower of Jesus, that he was considered uh, like Jesus was, as the scum of the earth worthy only of death. Father, help us to see his example of humility and servant-heartedness, considering himself only as a lowly servant of Christ. 
doing his job of making you known in the world and building up your church, not from persuasive words, but from a demonstration of the power of the gospel, which lies in the message itself. Lord, help us to be imitators of Paul. Help us to be imitators of Christ. Help us to carry out the gospel to the world, unafraid of what they might think of us. Help us to know that it is your judgment that ultimately matters, so we may, we may all be lowly servants of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.